so good to be with you. And uh, just enjoyed the sense of God's goodness. And I must say, whoever the parents are of these young people that played in the worship, they were magnificent. Quite magnificent. You see, the test of a, of, a, of a good music band is that you can worship and not know they're there. And uh, worship bands that are bad because they can't play don't do that. And worship bands that think they're so good that they add things in actually hinder that as well. So it was really excellent, I have to say. I've not seen a, a group of young, uh, young Christians minister like that before. It was first class. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you that we, we have your word and we thank you that we have your spirit and we thank you we have you, Jesus, at the Father's right hand. Thank you that you are there for us, head over all things for the church, which is your body. And so we, we have great joy, Lord, to look at your word and see what it has to say to us that can transform us and make us more according to your pattern and image. So do that in our hearts, individually and together, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, if you have your Bible and you've been on the weekend, you know exactly where I'm going to read from. Uh, and if you, ha if you weren't on the weekend, you'll have to turn to the Acts of the Apostles and we're, we're, we're just going to go to Acts chapter 13. I'm just going to read a few verses. I'll explain um, where we've been once I've read the Scripture. Acts 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We've been looking at, for the weekend at the life of Barnabas and uh, one or two have, have admitted that they didn't think that there was that much in about Barnabas but uh, either I made it up or there was more there than we realised. And uh, the point of looking at the life of Barnabas was that he was, if you like, the foundation layer for what became a very significant church in Antioch and uh, the, the reason for taking the theme uh, as I felt it was right in God was that if God is calling you um, to have such an Antioch function uh, as being a church that sends and equips and supports and affects the, the, a very wide area around it, that it then begs the question, what kind of men and women does God look for to be the foundation stones that actually builds an Antioch? Because God d doesn't work haphazardly. Uh, when, when the foundation stones needed to go in in this embryonic work in Antioch, so many people suddenly coming to Christ, what kind of a man does God look for in order to establish that work? And we looked at various aspects of this man. Uh, first of all, that he was a man that, that there was a long period. We, we read the scripture and we think, you know, we, we, we can read from chapters 1 to 13 before breakfast or thereabouts, and therefore we think that it happened very quickly and one event ran historically into the other, whereas that's not actually the case. 
that from between Barnabas being mentioned in chapter 4, where he sold a field and gave it and laid it at the apostles' feet, to where the apostle uh, Barnabas, that by then, and Saul, go off on the first missionary journey, there's over ten years elapsed. And uh, ten years without significant, with significance in that, that there was a, a transformation in the man from whereby his early days where generosity and sacrifice typified him to where he was a man of, of ministry and having been prepared in his heart and his understanding of doctrine and his ability to minister and actually disciple others and establish a church. And those ten years of preparation were very important for Barnabas and they'll be very important for you and I. And what we can't afford to do in the period before a significant work is sit on our hands and think that, oh well, when God really starts to move, he'll transform me in a moment. God, as I said before here, I think, that God is a gardener, not a magician. Sorry, Pete. And that he, he works on us over a period of time in order to transform us. And we must, we must be faithful as, as his people, seeking to, to be equipped and to be useful and to be ready or otherwise, um, we might find that the Lord has to use somebody else. Now, that was the first thing we looked at. We then looked at the man's character, that he was a good man, chapter 11 says. And uh, there are two aspects of this that we focused on. One was the whole sense of his generosity. And the, 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 this whole concept, the, the nickname that they gave him of being the encourager. And how the, the, the word is a derivative of the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, that Barnabas was a, as a man who came alongside and helped you and picked you up and supported you. And the whole importance in the church of God of being an affirmer and, an, and, and somebody who, who, who makes other people feel positive about the things of God and not negative. We looked at that. And then we looked at his generosity and, and the heart of the man, who in all kinds of adversity kept going in his ministry, and made all types of... We started off with him selling a field. That's the first reference to Barnabas. The last reference to Barnabas is where the Apostle Paul is talking about those that have to go on in ministry and go without a wife and go without a regular salary in order to do the work of the ministry that God had called them to. And it's in Corinthians 9, 6, I think, where Paul says, is it only Barnabas and I that have to make these sacrifices? So the guy, 14 years later, is still paying the price to make the thing work in terms of his calling God. And we, we looked at that, I hope, with some profit. If you weren't there, you can always listen to the tape. Many hours of fun. <laughs> we then looked at what it meant to be a spirit-filled man, and that it was recognizable to other people that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just some, a badge that he wore. There was a distinctive quality in, the, in his character and in the nature of his ministry that actually made a difference and people could single him out, as they did the, the, the others that waited on tables in chapter 6. And then this morning we looked at what it meant for this man to be full of faith, grounded in the faith, operating with a whole positive, confident expectation that God would do what, humanly speaking, appeared impossible. And I, I went to some lengths to point out that at the time that Barnabas took the first step into his missionary journey, nobody had ever done it before. The whole Greek-speaking world was unevangelized, unresponsive, and utterly daunting. 
And uh, I preceded it by, you know, reminding us as to how, how impossible it might appear for the gospel to triumph in our day in an environment not very far north from here where it's all been tried before and it hasn't worked, so what's the point of, try, of bothering in the first place? And yet Barnabas's prospects were infinitely more discouraging than that, and yet he was a man full of faith. That's where we've been, so I can sit down now, you know what's been all about. And uh, I, I've uh, looked at it in a, in, in a kind of spiritual health check approach so that we weren't just informing ourselves, we were measuring ourselves in the same way and having a, a sense of longing that God would help us have the same realism in life. That if I am going to fulfill the call of God on my life, there are certain necessary responses and choices that I have to make in order to be in the place where God can do that in me. And there's no shortcut to that. We have to face that one head on. But the question I, in the light of all of that, the question I want to ponder tonight uh, in the verses that we've just read is that why did he? You know, why did he? What were the underlying springs in this man's heart and life? What were the qualities? No, no, not even qualities. What was it that moved him? Why would a man... You know, what's the, all right, he saw the needs of the people, so he sold his field and laid the money at the apostles' feet. I understand, rationally. But what moves a man to be so generous? Because I've met a lot of evangelicals, and they weren't all quite so generous. Very odd. So what was it in this man that made him respond like that? And, uh, and, and in this whole sense of wanting to make sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, that actually seeing people come to Christ was so important to him, right? That inconvenience and hostility and, and hunger and shit and all the other things that he and the Apostle Paul suffered and more, that all of that was, he was willing, willing to take on board in, for the sake of the kingdom. Now, what is it that gets into a man that he makes those kind of choices? Because again, I have to say that I haven't found every evangelical to match that in terms of where, where we're coming from. So what was it about Barnabas? that or He was a good man, he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, he, and he, he was generous and he was sacred, but why? Why? Now, the, as you will know, um, we're not told, we, we don't know anything like as much about Barnabas as we do about the Apostle Paul, simply because of the quantity of material in the New Testament that refers to him. There is... Um, an apocryphal um, letter, the, the, the book of Barnabas, um, but uh, it's almost certainly somebody that wanted to get his book into circulation, so he slapped Barnabas's name on the front cover in the hope that people would buy it as a consequence, and uh, it's probably second or third century, so we, we're not going to learn very much from that. So I, I want us to look at the verses in, in, in chapter 13, in which I think I would say that there are some clues as to what it was underneath that made Barnabas go this way and respond in this, in this fashion. It was on the eve of the first journey, and uh, these five brothers, five leaders in the church, get together, and uh, Barnabas is the leader of them. Let's be quite clear. His name is mentioned first, but he's also the one that the brothers in Jerusalem had appointed and sent to the Antioch church in order to establish it. 
And therefore, you can be quite sure that Barnabas was responsible for this leaders' meeting that we have described at the beginning of chapter 13. He, he was uh, prima inter pares, if you like, but he, he was the person with responsible, given by the apostles, responsibility for the Antioch church. And therefore, what happens here probably came because of his values. I'm suggesting that to you. I think the values are right anyway, but I, I want to make that assumption. So take that one with me. Um, as being, as what happened here is reflecting Barnabas's values. Because it does give clear clues to the under, underlying sources in heart that operated in this man. And so that, the, I think the clues come in this, that they, that, let me read it again, in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, and the five of them are mentioned, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting. I want to look at those two aspects recognizing that worshipping the Lord and fasting were important. There were things that the Barnabas, as the team leader, brought into this leaders' meeting because they were important to him. What is the significance in the life of Barnabas in the fact that he, they, devote, they gave themselves to worshipping the Lord and to fasting? Let's look at the first one. What's the significance of worshipping the Lord? Well, they, the words are in the present continuous tense that they were going on worshipping the Lord. And it's an interesting word for worship. It's not one that we find in every, in every instance in the New Testament. And it was a word that was used in, in its Greek background for a voluntary public service, a, 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 an act done in the public arena out of the goodness of your heart, not paid for, a, a public service act. And in, in, the, in the spiritual realm, it was used to describe the activities of the priests who for nothing served in a public context, serve the Lord. It's the word that's used in Luke chapter 1. Remember, John the Baptist's dad, and uh, it was his turn, and he went up to the temple when the angel appeared to him and said he was going to be a father. Remember the incident? Luke 1, 23, when his time of, serv time of service was completed, he returned home. So here are these five men doing a service to the public, voluntarily. Says a lot about worship, actually. And uh, they, they were performing a priestly function to the Lord. Just five of them, right? That's an excellent indicator as to what elders should do when they meet together, or when they meet on their own, whichever way you look at it. And... Uh, <laughs> But they worship God. See? What, what was one of the springs in Barnabas' life that made him react in the way that he reacted? It was because he was a man who went on ministering to the Lord freely for, in a public sense. He was a worshipper. I tell you, the man was a worshipper. And the significance of it, you know, these together... They were, they, they were together in praise and thanksgiving. When they came together, there was a sense of adoration and glorifying God. That he was a Christian and those with him learnt from his ways. That they were those who were going to worship. They were free in their expression of, a, a, of gladness and gratitude and wonder because God was who God is and they knew him and they were in his presence. 
and the truth of all that is of, of, the, of the Almighty rung clear and true to Barnabas. And actually, you'll find it all the way through. You see, a man who is a worshipper won't put the emphasis in defining the church. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread and fellowship and praying. This is, a, this is in the context of people that know God. And that, that marvellous, you know, when, when the, 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 the Sanhedrin are doing their worst and causing all kinds of trouble to the church, and they gather together in Acts chapter 4, remember the first church prayer meeting, and verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, Sovereign Lord, they said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything. You see, now how can they pray like that in the midst of difficulty? Well, because they knew God. They knew that he was the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the ruler, the king of ages. Describe it how you want. And then you get Paul and Silas in clink, you know, feeling sorry for themselves, moaning for the fact that they got caught, not at all. Acts 16, at about, at about midnight, all the other uh, convicts were glad to know that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> The other prisoners were listening and muttering and joining in. I don't know what they were doing. But it's so typical of these men that they were worshippers. Wherever they were, whether they were together corporately, whether they were together in this case, in groups, whether there were just two of them in in the most adverse circumstances, they were a people who worshipped the Lord. Now, why was that? Well, because they were very, they were continually conscious of God. That they lived in the presence of God. They walked with God. A worshipper does that. It isn't just something I do, however I may express it on a Sunday morning at half past ten. That they, that they worship, they were, they were aware of God continually. I believe that was the principal key to why Barnabas responded like he responded. And uh, it is often, in, in, uh, and I've been in pastoral care now for over 20 years, and I've observed at length a lot of Christians, and I would say the majority of Christians that get themselves into bad attitudes and, and, and into bad behavior, it's largely because they've lost sight of God in who he is and present with them. It's so important. You see, I ask you, we, we again looked in chapter 11, that this man went to, Ant- went to Antioch, and it would have been a mess. It would have been the good, the bad, and the ugly would have been swarming around in all of these people that had just come to Christ. They would not be clean-cut Marks and Spencers Christians yet. Right? And it says that he went, he went to Antioch and he saw the evidence of the grace of God. And it, we, we've dwelt upon how, how fundamentally important it was that he could discern in the midst of all the confusion and all the mess, this is God. This is God. And the fact that it's gone outside of Jewish walls into a Gentile sphere, it must be right because it's God. How did he recognize the grace of God like he did? Oh, because he was a worshiper. Because he knew the Lord. Because there was a a sense in which he walked with his God, not just day by day, but moment by moment. I would say there's a crisis amongst us in evangelicalism today because we've, we've put God in his slot and in his category. He doesn't want to be in his category. He wants to be in our waking moments. He wants us to walk with him and talk with him along life's narrow way. That's the order of it. Godliness, godliness arises quite directly out of a lifestyle that is aware of the almighty moment by moment. 
I, I, I don't think there's... You, you listen to the Apostle Paul in Thessalonians 5. He says, be joy, rejoice always. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks. How do you do that? Unless I'm aware of that God is with me. And he is who he is. And I'm not hiding in the shadows, hoping he can't see what I'm up to. And seeing the things that are wrong in my heart and my mind. Not at all. I'm walking in the presence of God. And godliness naturally comes out of that. And it's what the Apostle Paul calls, you know, being spiritually minded. He says some very, in Romans 8, he says some very strong things about it, doesn't he? He gives us a clear option. And I have to say, I can testify to the, to the, the effectiveness of both. I, don't, I, I suspect that you can as well. Do you know what he says? Let me remind you, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature deny, desires. I have to tell you, I'm sorry to tell you, but I know how that works as a Christian. Have you ever, yeah, anybody else? Right? I, I, it's actually true. But those who live according to the, in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death. And it is, isn't it? Isn't it deadly when I walk carnally and I allow sinful things into my... I can justify them how I like. I can, I can think horrible things about, about anybody I like. And, you know, I, I can think, well, I, of course I'm right, but my, my, I'm in the flesh. It's carnal. I'm wrong. And it just produces death in me. You know, I just don't... I, to turn and gaze in the Lord's presence does not come naturally anymore. Um, but it, to, to, to live in the Spirit is life and peace. And it is. And to, and to know the love of my Heavenly Father and to walk and to keep in fellowship with God. Now, I know you were taught this when you were knee-high. I know that all evangelicals are taught this as soon as we're converted. If only we did it, isn't it? If only we were as good as what we teach others. That, I, that to, to, to actually walk in no a day-by-day day, natural fellowship with God. They called Barnabas, didn't they, when, when he got to Lystra? They called him Zeus. Oh, why was that? Well, we know why they called Paul Hermes, because he was the one that with the mouth. You know, he was the, 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 the P. Hodge, you know, he was the, he was the, the, the mouthpiece of the, of the organization. Huh? But Zeus was the one who reminded people about God, that, 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 that Zeus was the head of the pantheon. That, that, and there was something so godly in his countenance and in his conversation and his manner. And so they called him Zeus. You see, if he hadn't walked in the Spirit, taking this business when, when he was in, in Antioch, he could have completely missed it. See? He could have completely... Imagine that they'd made a mistake and what happened didn't happen and they'd sent Annas and Sapphira to kind of establish the church in Antioch. There would, would have been a different consequence. I'm sure you'll agree. Because there, it, the, the motives would have been all wrong. There was a lack of integrity. And if there was anger and resentment and hurt, and it, there was prejudice. You know, the, the Peter, before he saw the vision in, in the house of Simon the Tanner, before they, the, the Lord showed him that he wasn't to call things unclean that God called clean. If when, when he was just Jew and Goyim were Goyim and he, they, they weren't kosher and you wouldn't touch them so God shouldn't touch them. You know, when he was still in that mindset, you could never ever have sent a Peter to establish the work at Antioch. He'd have made a mess of it. But Barnabas was a worshipper. He knew his God. And he walked with his God as a worshipper. Now, I, 
I can go through the motions. You know, I, I can sing the choruses and clap my hands and make everybody behind me think I'm a really spiritual person. But of course, that doesn't mean anything at all, does it? I have to walk with God. I have to know this God of mine is real in my life. And I tell you, the reason that Barnabas and, and those that were with him, the four others, worship, were worshipping, going on worshipping the Lord was because that was part of the way he was. He knew his God daily, moment he worshipped God continually. And I, I don't doubt for a minute, as a consequence, he talked about the Lord enthusiastically. And we've got into a perverse situation in the church now where you almost feel a little bit coy about talking about the Lord Jesus. And if you do, you know, people say you're a bit super spiritual. Now, it's a tragic situation to get into. That Barnabas, who was aware of God, it would come out quite naturally. We have a delightful brother in the church. He's, he's, he's getting on. I don't know how old Charles Stewart is. Top 70s? Yeah. There's a Scot, uh, Edinburgh Scot. And... Uh, uh, the most gracious of men. Godly, godly man. And uh, he sat under the doctor for all the Roman series at Westminster Chapel, so that must have had some effect. And, um, and I, I was just walking down Isha High Street, and I saw him coming towards me. And, you know, sometimes you see Christians coming towards you, and you, you want to be like, you know, the priest and, the, and, the, and you know, pass by on the other side. But um, I saw it was Charles. And my heart rejoiced to see this man, because I knew I was going to be blessed by him. And he walked up to him, and I asked him how he was, and, and he, 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 you know, where have you are? Be, I, I can't, I, I can't uh, copy his accent. He said, I've just been to the doctor. He said, uh, and he had, his, he had a sling on his hand. He said, but I mustn't grumble. He said, God has been so good to me. And I thought, wow, Isha High Street. He's talking about what, a little bit of a sprain on his wrist, and all he can talk about was how good the grace of God had been to him. Can I tell you why that was? It was because he was a worshipper. And because he knew and relied on his God, moment by moment, his God was the most important thing to him. Um, I don't know if you've read, have you read Billy Bray's biography, The King's Son, Cornish Tin Miner? There, there, I'm sure that today people would have called him a nutcase, but the man, the man loved his God and worship was just a normal, enthusiastic part of his lifestyle. Barnabas went on worshiping. I, I find that if we live with God this way, it keeps us from sin. It keeps repentance very closely, part of our lifestyle as well, because if you don't walk in repentance, you lose the communion, isn't it? You can't walk in the Spirit and all that, you know, just do things which the Lord wouldn't approve of. It's an excellent check. And worship does renew and clarify and maintain a spiritual walk. And I would suggest to you that for Barnabas, that was one of the prime springs that produced all the things that we've looked at. He was a worshipper. It's, it's what, the, what Solomon, uh, you know, it's, it's almost encapsulating that, that sense of, bit of the fear of the Lord. Not a cringing fear, but an honourable respect. Yeah? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And there is absolutely no substitute. I, I, can, I can go through the motions of my Christian life, just about, and I might even be con you that it's working, but unless there's this sense of being a worshipper and, and knowing God and loving God, it will all be a little bit hollow. And the, the, the qualities that came out in Barnabas's life will not come out in me. That's the first thing he did. That's the easy bit. They were worshipping the Lord. They went on... <laughs> sometimes it does, doesn't it? They went on 
worshipping the Lord and fasting. Fasting? Well, deliberately putting food aside in order to seek the Lord. It's not just the fact that you want to kind of be a masochist and, you know, feel hungry and have a bad taste in your mouth. Um, that's not actually what fasting's all about. You see, why this indicates Barnabas's inner spring and values is, is this. You see, he had had, they had prophecies that were outstanding. That one of this group of five was Saul, and Ananias, 14 years before, or whatever it was, had prophesied that he was going to be God's chosen instrument to the Gentiles. Saul knew that. I'm quite sure oftentimes he talked about it. Barnabas, and it, it actually says here that uh, in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, and then he names them, that while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So they already knew what the work was. What they didn't know was when, what they didn't know was how, and what they didn't know is in the, in the, in the plethora of opportunities, which was right. And so that there's this man, this earnest man Barnabas, who really wants to get it right for God. And there's, there's an, an eagerness in his heart. He doesn't want to miss it. He doesn't want to, it's been 14 years or whatever it is. It's been going on a long time. And the, 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 the significance of the fasting was that he was taking seriously what God had said over many years and he wanted God to work out his word in his life. And I think earnestness is the best word to use. He was eager that he was wanting to be absolutely sure that God was going to do in his life what had been promised. And therefore, he fasted. And when Jesus, when the, when the Pharisees asked, you know, why don't your disciples fast? And, and Jesus said, well, you don't fast when the bridegroom's with you, Matthew 9, 15. How can the, the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away, then they will fast. Why will they fast then? Well, because the, the bridegroom, ha they haven't got immediate access to know what the bridegroom is thinking, what he wants, and when he wants it. And, the, and here Barnabas is in that position. We can't hang around it. They got the five of them, they just had a committee. No, they didn't. They just, <laughs> they, they just had a, a meeting of minds as brothers. And, and so they were saying, well, you know, Paul, you've had this word, and we, and we know that the Lord wants us to go to the Gentiles, but how are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? And the Spirit of God spoke to them through one of the prophets or another way, we're not told. And, uh, it, it, but it was for that. It was the eagerness in order to know to get things right. You have the same thing in Acts 14, when Paul has established churches in Derbeconium and Lystra particularly, and there's a the whole question of leadership and appointing elders. And it, it, it's almost as if that it, they say, well, tradition and preference and instinct and reason are inadequate in this. We have to know what the mind of the, the, the Lord Jesus is saying. And therefore, we read in Acts 14.23 that, that Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting. Now, that wasn't a ritual. That was because in these men there is an eagerness. Lord Jesus, this is more important than my food. I'm, I'm submitting my convenience and my hunger and my appetite to you because, Lord, I want to show you that I want to know. 
I want to do the will of God. I don't want to do what's right. I don't want my reason, my pre- what I say, my reason, my preference, my tradition, or my instinct to be the guiding factor. I want you to be the guiding factor, and therefore we'll put it aside in earnestness to say, Lord, make it clear. And this was at the heart of Barnabas. There was this earnestness to know what the Lord wanted that ran through his makeup and his heart. And just where it came from, that uh, in verse 3, it's it's prayer and it's fasting and prayer. And and when when I was thinking about this and preparing, I thought, well, actually, there's no reference to Barnabas ever praying. And then I read that verse and realized that I was wrong. There was one reference to him praying. And then... Well, if you weren't on the weekend, if you don't get this, listen to the tape. But those that were, just follow this for a minute. Right, in Colossians 4, it says that Barnabas was uncle to John Mark. John Mark was his nephew. In, was it? Acts 14, Acts 12, it says that John Mark's mother Mary had the house where the prayer meeting was held when Peter was in prison and they were meeting to pray to get him out of prison. So Barnabas's sister Mary lived in that house in Jerusalem where the prayer meeting was held. Was that just Mary's home or was that Mary's, mother, Mary's parents' home? Did that used to be Barnabas's home? That it was quite likely in that case because he did have his, his Jerusalem roots. We know that because the Jerusalem church appointed him to this mission to Antioch. So it would seem quite likely that Barnabas grew up, if not in the house where the prayer meeting and where people gathered to pray in times of difficulty, he grew up in a home which was associated with prayer. If a prayer meeting was going to be called in the church because Peter was in a mess, it was Mary's home that it was hosted in. And Barnabas came from that background. That was his home or his sister's home and his values. He needed to know as a place and a people that sought God. And, and therefore there's this eagerness and this earnestness that, that, that God's kingdom meant a lot to Barnabas. That was where he was coming from. That was why he fasted. God's honor, God's church, the gospel, the truth of God, the purposes of God. And uh, the truth is that, as somebody said once to me, that things change when Christians fast. Glad you've discovered that this week. The person that said it to me says they either get worse or they, get, they either get better or they get worse. But nothing stays the same when Christians fast. We had, uh, so when I was pastoring in just outside Bridgend a number of years ago, um, things were growing in the church, but ticking over. And we had some friends, uh, uh, somebody emigrated. We had loads of people emigrating when Portalbert Steelworks started to cut back. Half our leadership just went to Australia. That was great, really. <coughs> I was so happy. And uh, as a consequence, one of these went out to um, a church in Melbourne, and their daughter married the senior pastor's son, Phil Hills, Assemblies of God in Melbourne. And he was one of the main speakers at the Assemblies of God conference at Minehead. So that when he'd spoken to the assemblies of God, you know, all the kind of the, the thousands, he came across and preached for us in Kevin Cribble, which was, a, you know, which is uh, very nice of the Lord to arrange it like that. And uh, he, I remember walking on around Swansea Bay with him towards the Mumbles, and uh, he was just telling me about some of the growth principles in the church. And, and one of the things he told me was that they had a prayer covenant in their church, 
and that people were invited to give a meal a week and fast. And uh, people could sign up for any, but that once they'd signed up, the, 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 the issues in the church would be shared with those that were, were praying that meal time. And he said that significant conversion growth began to pick up once God people started to take the cause of the work of God seriously. Again, I, I understand fasting in that context. So around about 1981, might have been a little bit earlier, we, we, we taught on, on this in the church and, and we established a system and so that before long, there was somebody praying with fasting every breakfast, every dinner, every tea, that's what we called them, they have different, you might call them supper or something, I don't know, but I call it di- breakfast, dinner and tea. And uh, <clears throat> every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, and this went on for years. Prayer and fasting, that God would break through in principalities and powers, and that, th- that things which were out of control spiritually would get into control spiritually. And uh, after about three years, um, people started to get converted. And we, we had uh, two remarkable years where we were baptizing every Sunday night. I had deacons complaining. I remember one guy, quite, quite shirty, you know, like deacons do. And he, he said, <coughs> you know, David, don't you understand how much work this is every week? You know, I'm terribly sorry. Tell him not to get saved. Uh, and it, it was quite wonderful. I, I, was, I was saying this morning that there were people by the end of 1985... Who, and these were people who were saved from a completely non-Christian background. They'd never been to church. And there were people there who'd been in church a year, you know, so they were kind of mature Christians compared to a lot of others. And they, they, they'd never been in a church where somebody didn't get saved every time they met. It was normal. I think Pete was there around about that time. And uh, it was quite extraordinary, the sense of expectation. You'd walk in on a Sunday night, and not uh, joking apart, you'd think, oh, no, it's tonight, he's new. Hey, you're on the ball, mate. It's your turn. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was like that. I, that uh, I've never before or since seen people come to the front to give their hearts to Christ in the notices because they couldn't wait for the appeal at the end. <laughs> With my own eyes. And I, I could account for that because the preacher was absolutely brilliant. <coughs> it was, that wasn't the reason. The reason was because God's people took the purposes of the gospel and the church and the kingdom seriously every breakfast time, every lunch time, every tea time, every day, every week, every month for years. And I tell you, um, at the time we didn't really appreciate you know, what a, what a wonderful thing was happening there. Because there were a lot of people converted. Uh, But I have to say that it went back to the same kind of principles that Barnabas is illustrating here. The Holy Spirit cooperates in such company. When we want the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to lead us and to work in power as it does in these verses, with, with Paul filled with the Spirit staring out a sorcerer, that... The, the conditions have been met before then. The, the idea that this is just a kind of quick fix job and we'll kind of walk like the Archangel Gabriel is absolutely and utterly unrealistic. And that God is looking for that sense of earnestness in the heart of his people that is prepared to fast. It wasn't the fasting. It was what the fasting illustrated in the heart of the man. Where God and his purposes mean everything. 
where inertia and uncertainty is unacceptable. And I don't think that, there, that you will see any re-evangelization of Wales without it. There is a re very real price to pay. I, I read from Walter Craddock this morning, and somebody else knew who he was, it turns out, and mentioned it at the breakfast table, which is remarkable. Must be a word of knowledge. But uh, the price was paid by that man in exactly the same way that Howell Harris is, and Daniel Rowlands may have seen a, an evangelical church established in every Welsh community, and that's beyond, beyond doubt. The history books tell us that. But the price that was paid is unmistakable. There was an, a, a zeal and an earnestness which is required of us. So I would suggest to you that that earnestness and that intimacy and reality and awareness of God was at the heart of this man that made him generous, that made him sacrificial, that made him want to learn, that made him a man who aspired to faith and to be filled with the Spirit. The qualities of Barnabas had a root and uh, a heart that's loving and adoring and honouring God, uh, giving him our spiritual worship. Romans 12. I wonder where all of this worship and fasting will fit into our routines. Because you might think, well, that was very interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, yeah, that's okay. I'll tick that one. No, it has to work. It actually has to, as my friend says, you know, it's where the rubber hits the road. I have to be a worshipper tomorrow. I have to honor God in my thoughts. I have to love my Lord Jesus and make it my business. I, I remember I, I was helping, I was a secretary, or it was when I was at college, and Bob Dunnett of Prayer for Revival was... Uh, I lived in his house and I, I helped him write his letters. And uh, there was a lady who was depressed and he was, he's an Anglican, he's Bob, and so he does things in a funny way. And uh, he, he said that, he said, he, he, he told me to write the letter and he said, well, ask the lady to sing a hymn round her house before and after meals three times a day. I thought, what a strange thing to say. But it wasn't a strange thing to say. He was actually helping the lady to see the importance of praise and worship throughout the whole cycle of ordinary day. I would commend it to you, whether by hymn or whether by song or whether it's by reading the Psalms. I don't think it matters at all. How will fasting fit into your routine? Would you give a meal a week? How about Sunday lunch? I've only ever had one lady do that. You have to be godly to take Sunday lunch. <laughs> but it's where the rubber hits the road. It's a question of honest earnestness, which is so very vital or else otherwise we'll be talking about God's great prophetic purpose for us and only ever talking. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful that you are who you are. And we who were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we who could never ever have known you and had any prospect of your glory have been brought so near and we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We are so grateful, Lord. You have been so good to us. And Lord, it's a remarkable thing. We know that when we get to heaven that we will worship you forever and ever and ever without interruption. And yet, Lord, we suffer many interruptions here. I pray that in that you, Lord, in these days will do a work in our hearts so that we will be worshippers and that we will walk with God and that our lifestyle will be godly.
Lord, do that work in us. Give us 